Basically, it started in 2006, and Rwanda had one anesthesiologist in the entire country. It's a very densely populated country, and one anesthesiologist is not going to cut it. So since then, we've developed an anesthesia training program and have graduated um, several physician anesthesiologists, so much so now that they're actually running the training program. So we're um, starting to focus more on subspecialty training. Hey, this is Justin Harvey, your host of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. My wife is an anesthesia resident, and I'm a financial planner, and I work with anesthesia and pain doctors as my clients. This podcast is designed to help the anesthesia community be informed about their careers, their finances, and more by taking important questions straight to the experts. Thanks for tuning in. This week, we're doing the first of a two-part series about the practice of anesthesia internationally. And I wanted to look at opportunities for currently practicing anesthesiologists who are interested in medical missions or looking for cross-cultural impact with their vocation as an anesthesiologist. And so today, I'm pleased to introduce to you Dr. Anna Maria Crawford. Anna will share with us about her interest in using her skills as an anesthesiologist in places where access to medical care is very limited, and how she got involved with the ASA and at Stanford to equip many other anesthesiologists who have come in behind her for global medical excursions. And make sure to stay tuned to the end, where Anna also shares some amazing insights about her own battle with burnout and how she advises physicians to really take control of their own schedule in life, since no one else is going to care about doing that as much as you will. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Anesthesia Success Podcast. I'm really excited to introduce to you our guest this week, hailing from out in the Bay Area, Dr. Anna Maria Crawford. Anna is board certified in anesthesia and critical care and is currently a clinical assistant professor of anesthesiology and global health at Stanford University. At Stanford, she founded the Division of Global Health and Anesthesia in 2012 and continues as a co-director of that program today. She has experience in both academic medicine and private practice, in addition to her global health endeavors, all of which I'm excited to unpack here today. Anna, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's good to be here. So I first came across some of your written work on Thrive Global's website, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, uh, where your author page has this tagline. And and this is what made me think, I need to talk to Anna. It says, physician, (laughs) teacher, equity defender, and global health advocate. So I read this and I knew that this conversation had to happen. So why don't you just take a minute and unpack what that is and and why you encapsulated yourself in, in that manner? Um, Well, I think it encompasses the many interests that I have and have developed throughout my career. Definitely stayed in academic medicine for most of my career because I love to teach and love to have that interaction with trainees and and love the support and the resources that you get from academic practice. So the the teacher part is, is pretty easy and pretty obvious. Global health has been a passion of mine that I've developed since I was actually an intern which was kind of my first exposure to global health. And I've really sought to learn as much as I can about how to do global health and how to do it ethically. And then in in that have realized that, well, going back to global health, I think the advocacy part is, is fairly obvious, but may not be for everyone. I think that advocating for patients globally is really the whole point of global health, which is sometimes confused when people want to just travel or go on these medical mission trips, not really recognizing the impact that they're having on the local community. So I think advocating for the patients globally is really the whole point of doing global health. And in that is is defending equity of uh, resources and providing opportunities and facilitating the needs of colleagues that are working in these lower resource settings. So recognizing that you can't just go and apply the same 
medicine or principles to each place, you really have to facilitate the individual needs of each location in which you're working. So I think that really helps to promote our colleagues that may not have the same resources that we have. So that's the equity part of trying to make sure that happens. Awesome. Makes sense. So you mentioned that intern year was when this sort you awakened to this, uh, this desire to be a global health advocate. What was there a catalytic event or something that happened where you thought this is something I want to commit to? Actually, there was when I was an intern, I did a preliminary medicine year and this was back in Alabama, actually. And I had the opportunity to go with my intern colleagues to a very small village in Kenya. And at this point, you know, this is prior to anesthesia training, prior to critical care training. So I really didn't have too, too much to offer other than physical exams and differential diagnoses. And long story short, that's kind of what the entire trip had to offer. We didn't really, you know, even though we saw 2000 patients in like four or five days and we had patients lined up around down the streets, um, you know, we took furniture from local houses. We took sheets from local houses. We used community members. We, you know, ate the food from the community, et cetera. And we saw lots of patients and we gave lots of diagnoses. I think we probably had one time critical intervention on one patient. But when we left that community, we left it in the exact same condition in which Mm. we found it. So I think that to me was very eye-opening in that I realized there's got to be a better way to make an impact and to share the resources that we have from the West and the North. So that was very eye-opening for me and that I didn't feel like we had done much at all. Despite Mm. having a really wonderful experience, I think I benefited a lot more than the patients did, which is the opposite of what you're trying to do. Right. Did you have any personal interactions at that time that you still remember as you think back upon that trip? Yeah, actually, um, funny you should ask. There was one woman who, um, this is, it's a little embarrassing actually to admit, but she had much more of a profound impact on me than I had on her. She was about the same age. So she was probably late twenties, early thirties, as was I, and she had signs of AIDS. So she was, you know, not HIV positive. She had AIDS defining illnesses. And so, of course, I started to ask about resources for referrals and medications and antiretrovirals and realized there was just absolutely zero resources available to this this woman that was, for all intents and purposes, the same as me. And that was just really devastating to me. And I think actually she ended up consoling me, (laughs) which is pretty terrible because it was just so upsetting to me to realize that you can have two people living in parallel with such different stories just based on where they were born and the resources available to them. So that was an incredibly... I think it's an embarrassing story just because I'm admitting my naivete, but it was a um, very eye-opening experience for me. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. It. I went to Uganda when I was a teenager on a part of a, a missions trip to do some construction for a church. And yeah. I, I remember having the exact same experience. I was hanging out with these 16, 18-year-old guys, knowing that we share a lot, chronologically speaking, but there's this huge cultural divide. And then from a resource standpoint, like our existences are going to be so different. And that's so utterly humbling when you kind of process that. 
It absolutely is. Yeah. And it's just really eye opening. But I think there was another experience, which may sound silly because it's not related to medicine at all. But I was lucky enough to share this experience with my older sister, who is non-medical and didn't really have, you know, any medical expertise to offer, but was there really just to help organize. But I think, you know, she saw all the young children in the village and she had handed out, I don't know if it was candies or pencils or whatever. Mm -hmm. And inadvertently angered some of the village mothers because it ended up causing such a disturbance between the children. And they started fighting over these little trinkets that my sister just thought would be a lovely gift. And so I think that was the first experience of recognizing that good intentions don't always have uh, good outcomes. And, you know, you really have to be conscientious about how you interact with people when there is such a cultural divide and a gap in resources. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Maybe you could take a minute and give us a brief overview of all the different roles and responsibilities which you currently fulfill, Anna. Well, I'm kind of all over the map, but have done some really, really amazing things and have been really lucky in my career. So I, as you probably read, I was full-time anesthesia ICU at Stanford University for about seven or eight years, and then decided to leave briefly for a private practice job, which I ended up having a bad experience in deciding to leave, and subsequently kind of reshuffled the deck a little bit on what I'm doing career-wise and, and personally, you know, kind of trying to find a better balance. So currently, I'm coming back from taking some time off and exploring some other things. I had moved to New Zealand and did ICU there for six months and then wow. came back. And yeah, so I'm back in the in the Bay Area just because my, I have a lot of family here. But currently now, clinically, I'm still at Stanford working probably per diem hours, part-time hours, not, not as full-time as I used to be. Um, and then also working clinically at some of the other Bay Area hospitals which has been really interesting. It really has afforded me a lot of um, flexibility in my schedule and autonomy over my schedule. But at Stanford in particular, I am doing some clinical work, as I mentioned, but also continue to be actively involved in the Global Anesthesia Division, which we formalized in 2012, 2013. Mm -hmm. We also have a Global Health Fellowship at Stanford, and we have our second fellow with us now, which has been really fun and exciting. We have also a resident pathway for anesthesia residents and interested in global health. So we have a lecture series with them and they're also afforded opportunities to do projects collaboratively with some of our partners abroad. So that's been really fun and interesting as well. So those are really the projects at Stanford, but a lot of these projects kind of dovetail into other areas. I also have recently started a new endeavor volunteering as an anesthesiologist for an organization called Operation Access, which is in the Bay Area. And that organization basically provides free surgical services for patients that don't have access to health insurance. And that's hmm. been really lovely. And then I also sit on the American Society of Anesthesiologists. We have a global humanitarian outreach committee, and I sit on that committee for a few years now as a program lead for our overseas training program in Rwanda. So I do a lot of coordination and organization with that. Um, awesome. As well. Yeah. So awesome. I'm, a, I'm busy. That's I like great. <laughs> um, I'm curious. So there's a bunch of things that I want to sort of revisit, but the one that caught my attention with Operation Access in San Francisco, I'm curious, you know, you yeah. have a very, a lot of different experiences all over the globe. 
and you've got this thing in your backyard. Has there been anything that you've seen elsewhere where you found that in trying to meet a need locally, that there's been some translatable principles where something you learned in Kenya or New Zealand or Rwanda, you've been able to sort of enact some of those principles in your backyard or, or maybe even just share a little bit about what that, that program is like in San Francisco. Yeah. So I think, uh, some of those principles, I think specifically about the ethical approach to global health do kind of find their way into why I've started doing operation access. In fact, I got privileges at a local hospital simply for the opportunity to volunteer with this organization. And a lot of this comes from, you know, that experience that I had in Kenya, and I've had several other experiences subsequent to that in Rwanda and Zimbabwe and other places where you're coordinating these programs and you really have to question not only your motivations about doing this work, but also the motivations of others that you're trying to facilitate. So I started to really question why I personally and why the colleagues that I facilitate and my colleagues that I work with in the global health division or global anesthesia division, why we're having to fly to Africa to do the work that we do when we have lots of people that need healthcare just down the street. Mm. And I kind of started a search looking for ways to become more involved. And there's a lot of opportunity for the primary care specialties to work mm-hmm. in local free clinics and things such as that. But it's a little bit more difficult to actually coordinate and volunteer in perioperative services, so surgery and anesthesia, et cetera, simply because those resources are so incredibly expensive that there's just not a lot of it that that happens. So I'm new to this organization, but still really excited to learn about, one, how the organization is run currently, but also how I can help push that a little bit further so we can impact more people in the Bay Area. But I think the, the principle you were asking about is probably that you really want to make sure that the patient is the one benefiting from the the project. And so I think that's really why we need to start looking at where we're doing things and why we're doing things. And so I'm constantly evaluating that for myself and others. Yeah, great. So you had this experience as an intern in Kenya, and then you came back and you're back to the residency grind. And I know that you've had a few, what I would call career epiphanies as you matured as a (laughs) clinician. Why don't you kind of take us through a little bit of that timeline? What was your residency like and how did this global health interest continue to marinate? And then how was that manifest in conjunction with being a very busy doctor the way that you were expected to be? Well, I think you are pretty spot on. And although there are two very big questions in that, one is how was my residency, which would be a whole nother interview, I think. And then the second is how did this global health interest marinate? Residency was as you know, because you're living through it now, it was very challenging, um, very demanding. I was right at the cusp of the 80-hour work week enforcement, et cetera. So we really just were super exhausted. I went to a very hands-on type training program, which was great, Mm -hmm. but the didactics, et cetera, and this is years ago, so I'm sure the program has changed dramatically since then. But you know, the didactics and the learning was, you know, you really had to be self-motivated, which is good for some, not so good for others. So I considered it good training, but a bit challenging in that. So I wasn't really thinking about global health very much because my bandwidth was pretty consumed by residency. Makes perfect sense. (laughs) There wasn't a lot of room for it, especially when, you you know, you didn't have the 80 hour work week restrictions. So you're just trying uh, to do your laundry and go grocery shopping occasionally. 
Yeah. <laughs> if I got a shower in, I was probably doing pretty good. If I ate, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so then I went to Stanford for my ICU fellowship which was a really lovely transition. I really, I'm originally from Southern California, so I was happy to be back in California. I'm happy to be closer to some of my family. But again, ICU fellowship was pretty demanding, not quite as demanding as my residency. And I really enjoyed that. So it wasn't long after that, that I, you know, once my bandwidth kind of opened back up, I started to think about global health once again. And I was looking for, a master's program, actually, I was going to do a master's in public health, and I was looking for programs that had an international slant, etc. And then I found this master's in global health sciences, which was just up the street at UCSF. And oh. since fellowship, I've lived in San Francisco and commuted to Stanford. So it really was um, geographically convenient. Great. So I am lucky enough to have a very supportive, really incredible chairperson who really facilitates faculty and lets them, you know, execute their vision. So Ron Pearl was really open to discussing with me about going back to get this master's program while continuing to work. So we rearranged my schedule ever so slightly. Mm. Um, but I did a full-time master's and was working full-time for a year. So that wow. was also pretty challenging. Wow. Yeah. Right. But he understood that I wanted to go get this master's in global health and like really set aside the time. Mm-hmm. And that's really what the program allowed me to do was to set us out a time to formally study, you know, all these different components of global health and all these different stakeholders and partnerships and just different methods of how you can impact global health outcomes. And that was awesome. I was really so glad to be supported through that. And so then I finished that with the intention of starting global health programs for residents and fellows, et cetera. So I started this global health division. So how far removed from residency were you or fellowship at the time that you concluded the global health? I finished as of, let's see, fellowship was 2008, 2009, and I finished that master's in 2011. So I maybe worked for a year and then did another year in that master's program. Okay. So I'm never going back to school again. (laughs) (laughs) But, um... So anyway, yeah. So then really started to investigate ways to start global health programs for our trainees Um, and was also lucky enough. Another mentor of mine, Drew Patterson, who's now the chair at Emory, was gracious enough to allow me to accompany him and his group to a small village in Rwanda, where we also did kind of service provision type mission Mm -hmm. trip which was also a good learning experience, but we did um, adult thyroid resections for goiters, which was fun Mm. and Mm. and, uh, very interesting. Mm. But again, kind of learned a lot about what I uh, liked and probably thought could be improved about these service-based missions and how our interventions were good and how our interventions could be, you know, maybe not so good. So another learning experience. Sure. Could be good and could be improved. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> and so you're very busy. Fellowship, another degree, and then trying to launch these global initiatives. I know that you, from your the writing that I've read, that this was a time of continuing to evaluate or maybe getting to the point where you're thinking, what do I want out of life, out of my career with balance between these professional pursuits and other pursuits? Talk a little bit about how that was evolving during this time and, and how that played out. Yeah, I think it was only a couple years later that I decided to actually cease being a full-time clinical physician at Stanford. So this was definitely a time of hyper productivity, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. 
And for all intents and purposes, my career was amazing. And I was doing a lot of really amazing things and had all these great resources available to me. But there were a couple of elements of the situation that just tended to weigh heavily in a negative way. And I think a lot of that were involved time commitments, commuting, long clinical days where you may not get out of the operating room in any sort of decent hour. You just, and I think a lot of it had to do with just not knowing, not being able to make plans with friends or family, not being able to consistently work out. And so that not knowing when, when your day is done, plus a commute was just really exhausting. You know, I had all the resources that I needed. I had amazing mentors. I had amazing opportunities. I definitely had, you know, the drive to get a lot of this stuff done, but I think I needed to really reevaluate and kind of obviously narrow down what I wanted to focus, which Mm -hmm. I don't know if I've actually narrowed down at all. I'm still quite manic, but it's an ongoing (laughs) process. Yeah, it is. It's definitely a learning experience. You know, there was one statement Well, there was a couple things. One thing that one of my mentors, Drew Patterson, said to me, which was a huge compliment, but I think very eye-opening for me. When I was coming out of fellowship, so still very young, still pretty green, he told me at one point that I had what it takes to be the chair of a department one day. And I thought, oh, God. And I just thought, you know, I guess that's what I'm doing. I'm doing all of these things and I'm being hyperproductive and I'm getting involved. But is that the path on which I want to be? Is mm-hmm. that where I'm headed? Is that what I'm meant to be doing? And additionally, you know, which I love the fact that I had that kind of mentorship and people that gave me that confidence, you know, that's just mm-hmm. a huge gift. But for me, it was a little more eye-opening on what I was doing and where I was going and whether or not that was the right path for me. Right. I think another thing that kind of fed into that was the more I did with my projects in that, you know, I'm on the ICU fellowship education or anesthesia, ENT difficult airway teaching Mm -hmm. or all my global health stuff, the more projects that I took on, the less clinical time. I had, which is just how it works. You need that time to do all these projects. But I got to the point where I'm like thinking, is that, do I love these projects more than I love my patients? And I don't think that that's who I am. I don't think that the, you know, I, I do enjoy, you know, the administrative, the teaching, I enjoy all of it, but you know, I I am first and foremost a healthcare provider and Mm -hmm. I really, really cherish that interaction with the patient. So, you know, it's, it's not that I don't want to do those other things. It's just that I need a better balance on, on that. Yeah. So I know that you had written this article, leaving my dream job was better than finding it. And that was this describing this experience of, it sounds like, is this that segment in time, what you're describing with that? Yeah, definitely. I think it's easy. And I think it, I mean, arguably when you have a really exceptional work environment in that you're highly supported, you have lots of resources, you know, and you're surrounded by these brilliant colleagues and everybody's sprinting. Everybody's just doing amazing work and it's super inspiring. It's easy to get swept up into that rapidly running 
river mm-hmm. and just get sucked away. And I had a really hard time slowing myself down, I think, because I'm naturally driven. I mean, we all are naturally driven. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in this field. That's right. For some, that's not an issue. But for me, it was. Mm-hmm. I had a hard time slowing myself down. I really felt like I had to step away to refocus because, yeah. you know, if you talk to most of these trainees and many of the anesthesia providers, everybody has multiple interests. And so in the beginning of your career, you're like, oh, yeah, I want to do that. That sounds interesting. I want to do this. That sounds interesting. Right. You know, And so you start to get involved in just so many different things. And it sometimes takes a while to figure out what really what is your passion and where should you be? And for me, it was teaching and global health. Like, mm-hmm. and, and if I can do those things together, which I often do, I'm the happiest, hmm. you know, with the days I'm teaching in Rwanda, I'm high. I just absolutely could not be happier. So I think, you know, for me leaving did a couple things. One, just getting a different perspective by mm-hmm. stepping away from it all mm-hmm. and just taking myself out of the quote unquote rat race, which it could be depending on how you frame it. But also it really just, it kind of gave me confidence. And I know that sounds ironic, but, you know, growing up in these academic institutions and then landing at Stanford, which was way beyond where I ever expected to land and being surrounded by all these amazing people, you know, you really feel like I've been able to do all of this good work because I had good mentors. I've been able Mm -hmm. to do all this good work because my department helped me with my master's degree. I've been able to do all this good work because you know, of everything that Stanford did or everything my residency program did for me or that others did for me. And it took me kind of stepping away for me to realize that I did all of those wonderful things because I did all of those wonderful things. Yeah. You know, I was I was making use of resources and deciding to use utilize, you know, the resources I had at hand. But really, I was the one who created those things. Yeah. And so it's, and, you know, it's a, it's a common theme of imposter syndrome right. or whatever you want to call it. But it took me realizing that just because I stepped away from Stanford briefly, it didn't take away, you know, my skill set, you know, or my drive or my passion. Yeah. Um, you know, I st- those things are mine. And I bet you probably <laughs> stirred up potential. I would be willing to bet that if we can see things with 100% omniscience, you stirred up some envy in the hearts of some of your colleagues, would you say? Oh, well, you know, I don't know if envy is the right word, maybe, but I have had, when people ask me, what I've been up to. And I tell them, they're like, Oh, wow. Like, they're just so I actually, I ran into a surgeon I worked with a surgeon the other day at Stanford and I haven't seen him in years and, you know, time flies. And, he, and he's like, Hey, Anna, I haven't seen you in a while. And I was like, yeah, I think it's been about three years. And, um, and then, you know, we take care of the patient. And then like midway through the surgery, he asks again, so where have you been? What's been going on? And I said, well, you know, I quit, I moved to New Zealand, I mountain biked my brains out, you know, I've been <laughs> traveling, I've been doing all these things, I've been doing all this global health work. Um, you know, I came back to Stanford just to do these projects, blah, 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 blah. And then it was probably another half hour and he goes, I just have to say that's the best thing I've heard because most people hmm. said, oh, I've just been stuck in the ASC or I've been <laughs> at the main or, you know, I've been in some other clinical location just stuck doing cases, but no, you've been off mountain biking in New Zealand or, you know, whatever. Yeah. So, oh, that's great. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's important. Yeah. So when you said, I'm going to step away from this, what were you stepping away to? What did your life at that juncture look like? Well, so I left Stanford really out of fatigue. And so I had decided to do the private practice. So Mm -hmm. I had kind of 
knocked on a few doors to see what was out there and decided, well, I'll just try it. I never really envisioned myself as a private practice physician just because of my love of teaching and, and all these other projects. Mm-hmm. But I figured maybe I could do both and figure it out. And that's really what happened. So I stepped away to private practice and I lasted there for about really about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And I joined a really lovely anesthesia group and had a lot of respect for my colleagues, but the environment of that hospital was just really, really difficult. And I felt like it just wasn't my, my place. Yeah. And then I had a couple interesting things happen personally, where really the way I was able to have the freedom that I've had for the last two and a half, three years is that I had bought a house in San Francisco and then I sold that house which is not a bad investment, as you know, no real estate in the Bay yeah. Area, pretty, <laughs> pretty crazy. So I actually made the decision after leaving that private practice job, because, you know, I'd left Stanford out of fatigue and was a little bit like searching for my balance and what I needed. And then I entered this private practice job that I really just was very unhappy in. Mm-hmm. And so I started thinking, okay, what's going on? This, there's something, something isn't right. I've got to figure out what that is. And so that's, I decided that after I sold that house, I was going to take a year off. Yeah. And so I did. Well, I took six months off and then somehow got this contract to do ICU in New Zealand, which was basically like having time off because it was just so amazing. And then when I came back from New Zealand, I took another six months off before I started working clinically again. Okay. So now I'm back working clinically at full-time hours, just divided amongst a couple hospitals. Okay. And did you find that time restorative? And what what did you spend your time and effort on in those, in the time off? That's been the best part of my life. I have to say it's, it was, I can, I call it many different things, but one thing is like my midlife retirement. You know, I think most responsible adults would have taken that money from selling the real estate and popped it into their retirement accounts. And, um, you know, I did part of that, but you can really live on very little, especially if you are camping, which That's is right. what I did a lot of. I did a big road trip through a bunch of national parks with my dog and hmm. camped all over the place. I visited family and stayed with family. And then the move to New Zealand was, you know, it was a locum's position. So I was okay. very well compensated. Um, and that was really fun. And then when I came back from there, I... I got an apartment again and just said I was going to use a little bit more of that money for six months and stay in the Bay Area and, and figure out where I wanted to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of that was Stanford. Obviously, I never really, truly left Stanford. I always maintained an adjunct appointment, even in New Zealand, and stayed engaged in the global health process throughout. Like I've never detached from that part of the mm-hmm. job. Yeah. And then started figuring out where I want to work clinically. And I have found a couple really nice places that give me a good mix of both anesthesia and ICU in the Bay Area. And so I'm really happy, happy with that. Okay. In some of your writing, you you spoke about this journey that you've taken with regards to mashing down the gas pedal. You know, you said everybody is in a sprint. I think that's a great Mm -hmm. descriptor for that cohort of very smart, very high achieving physicians who are at the top of their game at a top institution who have been just going for it for super ambitious years. people. Yeah. And, and just remarkable people. Yeah. Yes. And then you at, at some point, you know, starting to ask questions about what are my goals and priorities and are they the same as all of these people that I'm like running a million miles an hour in this group with, or is this only for a season of time and does it make sense to reevaluate? So what you said was establishing a clear and personal definition of our own goals and priorities is the problem, alluding to like the burnout, stress, and that negative experience. So it sounds like you've you've been very intentional 
during this year and a half-ish of a very different pace of life to give some thought to your own personal definition of goals and priorities and how you want that to play out for you for for this next stretch of time. So I'd be interested to hear, and I'm sure there's other physicians right now who are in this group who are just sprinting and who are looking for perspective on what does it mean to pause and to consider what are my goals and priorities and does this current environment continue to support those or or do we need to start questioning some of the assumptions? How, how did that play out for you? For so many years, you're kind of forced to perform in this system, meaning you go to university, you take your MCAT, you go through these required levels of training that's very prescribed. And then when you finish, it's really during that time that you have to figure out what to do next. And there's not, there's no longer a prescription. There's no longer somebody telling you what to do. So sometimes, such as with myself, it just takes a little while to figure out what to do next. And so I think what happened is, although I was ambitious enough to complete, you know, design and complete these projects that were my, I mean, they are my passion projects. They still are. I was still in some regards following along in this system, Mm -hmm. you know, where I felt like I was doing things because I thought that's what I was supposed to be doing in order to advance my career or according to my division chair, my chairman, my colleagues, my mentors, whoever. I was doing things because I thought that's that's what I was supposed to be doing. But a lot of times, you know, such as the comment about you could be a chairperson, the reaction that I had to that internally was very telling. Um, I think <laughs> that, was a, that was a big one. But also, you know, watching some of these people that I absolutely admired and respected and my mentors were so amazing. They still are my mentors and they still are amazing. But watching how hard they work um, and the amount of sacrifice and I'm trying to be careful because I, I think that that's commendable and respectable. But I think each individual has to determine what value that is to them. And I feel like a lot of us, when we work like crazy, there is this somewhat toxic validation and feedback that we get from that, that just makes us feel like we're doing a really great job, even if it's at the sacrifice of family or friends or health. Mm -hmm. And for me personally, I felt out of balance. And I feel like I really had to examine the motivations of me being overly committed. And again, yeah, the direction in which I was headed. So doing what you're supposed to be doing to advance according to others versus really finding your own direction and your own path. I think for me, the key was autonomy. I want to be doing all these things. And Mm -hmm. I still am. I'm just as manic as I was. It's just on my terms. It's on my schedule. And I have a little more control, I would argue, Mm -hmm. over how hard I work, how often. Mm Because I think we're all a little manic at times and then amotivational at times. And I feel like I have a little more control over when I can be manic. (laughs) And if I'm tired, I'm tired. And, And I, you know, I take a little time off. But I think finding your balance is a very personal thing. And I think it takes a lot of practice. I mean, I am still learning and I hope I always am and I'm still evolving in this area and I hope I always am. But, you know, balance is a practice. Happiness is a practice, just like medicine is a practice. Mm -hmm. So I think 
I think yeah. that those things you really have to, you do have to be intentional. But I think the biggest takeaway really, really is that it's okay to be selfish, which is something I had to learn, you know, doing things because other people think you should be doing them is not going to make you a better physician. Mm -hmm. If you're selfish and you take care of yourself and by selfish, I just mean take on the projects that you're truly interested in instead of doing a project because somebody else thinks you should be doing a project, really looking out for your health, getting enough sleep. And then in that is quality time with friends and family. Those things were, were out of balance for me. And I think you can view them as being really selfish, but I think selfishness is not necessarily a bad word. And it actually makes me happier, healthier, and in that a way better physician, a way yeah. better teacher, a way better mentor to others. Yep. I think it's just, it's pretty invaluable. That's right. And unless you protect yourself, you don't have anything to give and to share and to build with. The fact that you are really pressing into that for yourself, I think is really awesome and going well, to- Yeah. And I think you nailed it, Justin, like the, what you just said resonates in that, like, if you don't care for yourself- you don't have anything else to give. And I felt like I had gotten to the point where I had a little bit of resentment creeping in, a little negativity in my attitude creeping in. I'm a really happy person. And one day, one of my colleagues said, Anna, you lost your smile. Hmm. And that was really telling to me. Hmm. So I realized that, you know, I really did need to make a change just for myself. And, you know, maybe I'm wimpier than my colleagues, but I don't really care. You yeah. know? I'd rather be balanced and happy and mountain biking sometimes, you know. That's right. Yeah. No one, uh, no one would be able to call you a slacker with the CV that I'm looking at right now. Oh, so. thanks. Thanks, Justin. That's nice. So if I am interested in this global health thing that I'm hearing about from you, and maybe I went all the way through residency and I didn't know global health was a thing other than people that Doctors Without Borders participate in, but the fact that there could be, for example, a global health fellowship, that is like totally news. Why don't you maybe explain a little bit about what that is and, and how you seek to equip young physicians to be able to have that global perspective? You're absolutely right. A lot of people don't really understand what global health is or know what global health is. And that's part of the fellowship and part of the resident pathways, really just defining global health. But again, I think the core of global health is advocating for patients no matter where they are, whether they're in Africa or the Bay Area. So it's global patient advocacy and making sure that those patients have equal access to to health. So most of, you know, in the in the past, I've done a, some of the service-based trips, we call mission trips. I think that I've gotten away from that personally and really found a lot of value in some of the key words these days are sustainable and capacity building or however you want to call it, mm -hmm. but becoming involved in projects that actually impact the healthcare system, therefore improving patient outcomes. So whether mm -hmm. that's research mentorship, whether that's teaching, whether that's uh, quality improvement and safety. So people that are interested in global health probably have a little bit of background. Maybe they have a trip like I had to Kenya under their belt, or maybe they're just interested in learning more and they can really get involved. There's several institutions. I think our global fellowship was one of the first, but we were launching it right beside several of our partners and mm -hmm. um, academics such as UCSF and Vanderbilt. And the Canadians are, are a step ahead of us too. They've got several fellowships as well. So, and all of these academic institutions are very collaborative. So if a trainee has an interest in global health, they can check out all these different programs across the US and Canada as well. Australia and New Zealand have a ton as well. Okay. The American Society of Anesthesiologists has that Global Humanitarian Outreach Committee 
We have a website that we're constantly posting opportunities, whether it's for a service-based mission or whether it's for a learning opportunity. There's scholarships for residents through the ASA. Personally, at Stanford, we have two ACGME-approved rotations. One is in Rwanda and another is in Zimbabwe. UCSF, I know, also does a lot of work in Uganda. So if you just started cruising around the academic institutions, you'll find lots of global health opportunities. And the Global Health Fellowship, I think the biggest reason people go into that is is twofold. One, they're either looking to get that MPH or that master's in public health or Mm -hmm. global health, which some of the Global Health Fellowship programs offer. Ours does not offer that, but what we do offer is a very flexible year that really allows the fellow to dedicate, you know, their time to a project. Most of the people seek a global health fellowship because they want to know how to incorporate global health into their careers. So I think that my colleagues and I have demonstrated pretty well how that can be done in an academic setting, but we also have this huge network across the globe of people doing all kinds of really amazing things Mm -hmm. for healthcare. And so you can work in academics, you can work with NGOs, you can work with, you know, industry even to really get involved in some of these amazing projects. Mm. So I think the benefit of spending a year doing global health is one, because you get to to see what it's like to either initiate uh, design um, and or follow through on a project, but also just an introduction to, you know, some of the things, if you don't know what global health is, you know, we can help you define that and and define all the stakeholders and different types of collaborations and partnerships, but also to just really harvest that really vast network of people doing great things. Yeah. With regards to the specific mandate for the Global Humanitarian Outreach Committee, what within the ASA, what is the job of that committee, and, and what's your participation like? And if somebody's interested in either partnering with that committee or getting some resources from them to be able to understand how they sure. may pursue some sort of global health initiative, what what would that look like? So the ASA GHO is what we say in the biz. It's um, Really, its main motivation is to provide ASA members with opportunities to get involved in global health. We have several programs that run annually. And then as a committee, we also evaluate other potential projects to see if we have the resources to support those. We have a limited amount of funds, but some of those projects, we have an overseas training program in Rwanda, which of which I'm the program lead, which I can talk to you all day long about. It's a really great program. Basically, it started in 2006 and Rwanda had one anesthesiologist in the entire country. It's a very densely populated country and one anesthesiologist is not going to cut it. So since then, we've developed an anesthesia training program and have graduated several physician anesthesiologists, so much so now that they're actually running the training program. So we're starting to focus more on subspecialty training. There's a similar program that is only a few years old in Guyana, which is a similar format in that we're starting a a residency training program there and helping that the local faculty develop um, to support themselves through that. There's a resident scholarship that is offered um, so that American residents can travel abroad and get an introduction to global health. Um, Further, we have another scholarship for young anesthesia faculty from lower resource settings or low and middle income countries. And they actually come to the U.S. and they rotate at an institution and they go to our conference, the the ASA annual conference. Okay. Um, Yeah. Cool. Lots of good stuff going on there. Great. Uh, Anna, I'm going to wrap it up. I have one last question I'd like to ask you. You are a physician who has achieved a lot and impacted many and are continuing to do so. And this has obviously required a lot of sacrifice. 
I'd like to hear just a a little reflection on a time when you have had this interaction perhaps with a patient or maybe with a project you're working on where you thought this has cost a lot, but in this moment with these things we've been able to accomplish, the lives I've been able to impact, this has all been worth it for me. There's really, clinically, there's not a day that goes by that I don't feel grateful. I just feel like it's a it's a huge, huge privilege to be able to take care of, of patients and their families. Just that moment of bonding before a surgery when a patient's really nervous is, is pretty amazing. And similarly, dealing with critically ill patients and their families, specifically at the end of life, is a very challenging time. And when you can help a family go through that confusing, often confusing and mm-hmm. emotional time. I think that's just such a intimate time in a patient's life and in a family's uh, interaction. It's really quite a privilege to be there. I have many, many, many stories about patients specifically and families, but I would argue that really every day I'm grateful to, to be where I am and to be just sometimes just looking down at a sleeping patient. I'm just blown away by the skill set that we have to get somebody safely through surgery. It's yeah. pretty amazing. Pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, it absolutely is. Well, Dr. Anna Maria Crawford, thank you very much for joining us today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Hey, Justin here. This may shock you to learn, but I am actually not a full-time podcaster. I also run a financial planning company called Quantify Planning, where I work closely with anesthesia and pain docs to build and implement customized financial plans. If you're interested in working with a financial planner who knows many of the ins and outs of your profession, shoot me an email or head on over to quantifyplanning.com for more information. If you're a resident or fellow, I can also offer you a free student loan analysis if you're interested, but there might be a waiting list, so check out the link over there to see. If you're interested in learning more about the topics we discussed today, head over to anesthesiasuccess.com to join our community of residents and attendings and others to ask a question or get more free resources. If and only if you like this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe. Thank you very much for listening to the Anesthesia Success Podcast.